welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Lee Strang, John W. Stepler Professor of Law and Values at the University of Toledo College of Law. We will discuss his book, Originalism's Promise, a Natural Law Account of the American Constitution, which is published by Cambridge University Press. So welcome to the show, Lee. Thank you so much, Brian. Yeah, it's my pleasure to have you on. Um, and I really enjoyed reading this book, which with a, with a sort of a, a, a novel account that I hadn't kind of thought of before in terms of the way of of thinking about originalism and, you know, why originalism might or might not be consistent with uh, constitutional, uh, our, our idea of constitutional values. Um, in terms of kind of situating listeners in where you're coming from, I, I wonder whether you could talk a little bit about what you mean by originalism, because there's so many different versions of originalism out there. And, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of how you think we ought to think about originalism as a way of thinking about constitutionalism. Sort of what version of originalism are you suggesting that we should be kind of thinking about the Constitution through in this book? Sure. And thanks for that question, Brian. And it's actually, it's a great question because one of the things that's occurred over the last, well, maybe 15 years now, maybe 20, is that there's become a, a wide variety of different, as you said, versions of originalism. And and so when I think of, of different uh, manifestations of originalism or different conceptions of it, there's lots of different axes where one could uh, divide up uh, different originalist theories. So one axis would be, what is it that the scholar or theorist or judge or lawyer looks to, to identify the constitution's meaning. And those come in flavors of original intent. So what was the intended meaning by the framers or the ratifiers or the American people? Another one is the original understanding. What was the public, what was the understood meaning by the ratifiers when they ratified it? Uh, a more recent one is original methods. Uh, John McGinnis and Mike Rappaport have advocated using the conventional methods of interpretation that were in place when the text was ratified. So let's say 1789 for the original constitution, and then using those conventional tools to identify what the, what the meaning was at the time. And then the one that, that I associate myself with is called uh, public meaning originalism. What was the public meaning of the text when it was ratified? And, and so that's one access uh, that's commonly understood to, to identify different uh, types of originalism. There's, there's different uh, normative justifications for originalism out there. Uh, one uh, very prominent one uh, is by Professor Randy Barnett. And his argument in a, in a very uh, brief nutshell was that consistently followed, originalism leads to the most protection of natural rights. Uh, John McGinnis and Mike Rappaport argued that consistently followed, originalism leads to the best consequence. So it's a consequentialist argument. Mine, of course, is a, is a natural law account uh, that, that, that human flourishing is best secured uh, by following originalism, uh, as I understand it, consistently. So there's there's lots of different manifestations, and there's there's more out there that I haven't identified. Uh, I think those are maybe two of the most important axes upon which originalists uh, 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 differentiate themselves. But it's also the case in, in, that originalism uh, does have a, I, I argue, a coherent whole. And here I follow the the work of Larry Solom, and who argues that originalism has has two core two core components. One is the fixation thesis and the other is the constraint principle. And so the fixation thesis is that 
regardless of how one identifies the, the Constitution's meaning, original intent, original understanding, original meaning, original methods, whatever it might be, that, me that meaning was fixed when the text was ratified. Then the second component is, once you've identified that meaning, all originalists are committed to the proposition that that meaning uh, constrains the outcomes of constitutional law. So it constrains, or it should constrain, what the Supreme Court does, what Congress does, and what the president does. So, so originalism, I think, is best characterized as a family of theories that's focused on those two uh, components, and, and that different originalists are arguing within that family umbrella for what they think is the best conception of originalism. Yeah, so, so, so one thing that I was really interested in in your account, which I hadn't seen before, and maybe I just, you know, I hadn't read the right stuff, but you sort of – you suggest that a lot of that, that, you know, although there's this sort of spectrum of theories of originalism, they all kind of converge on similar outcomes or similar answers. Because, in a sense, at least as I took it, they're sort of different ways of asking the same question and that ultimately sort of end up incorporating the same kind of basic information about how we ought to understand the meaning of the text. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about why that is. Yeah. So that, that's one of the moves that I make. And so as, as a, as a young person in law school uh, was when originalism was really starting to, uh, to take off as a theory with lots of different manifestations. And I found myself thinking, okay, where do I fit in this? And, and why do we have so many different manifestations of originalism? And is it the case that, these are all distinct, or is there something deeper that, that ties them together? And so the move that I try to make at the beginning of my book is I try to argue that uh, public meaning originalism incorporates original intent originalism and original methods originalism so that, that they are substantively not distinct. And, and, I, and, I, and I, I adopt a particular perspective to make that argument, and, and, it's, and it's called the focal case perspective. And I draw this from John Finnis. And the idea of the focal case is that when you're looking at, let's say, something in nature, Brian, like like an oak tree, there are there are kind of the scrawny, uh, the leaves are brown, it's 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 weak, it's swaying in the wind, kind of oak trees. And then there's the the real oak tree, right? The the full one that goes up 50 feet. It's got the the big canopy. It's green, tons of acorns. That's that's the focal case of of the oak tree. And that same type of account applies to human practices and human institutions. And so what I argue is that the focal case of lawmaking is of a rational legislator, a, a, a rational lawmaker. And that rational lawmaker has two main things on his or her mind. First is, what is the challenge or, or challenges out in the community that law can help resolve? And then what is the, the law that's going to, to resolve that? And the technical name for the challenge is a coordination problem. What's going wrong out there that I need to make a law that will fix it? And, 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 the, and the coordination problems, so think if you're in James Madison's shoes. The Articles of Confederation are there. Uh, they're, they're chugging along. Things are, 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 are working less and less well. It gets to the point where you call the Annapolis Convention because, my gosh, we need to get a, a taxing power for this. Federation Congress because they don't have any money to do anything and we're in tremendous debt, but even that doesn't work. And so you call the Philadelphia Congress and you look over and you see lots of problems out there. One common example that, that's given is that the Continental Congress did not have any power over interstate trade. 
and that was leading to a lot of trade disputes. And so what does the ration, what does the focal case of the legislator do? There's a coordination problem where states are fighting amongst themselves, and I'm going to create a law, we call it the Commerce Clause, that's going to, to, the, to, to an extent, try to resolve that coordination problem. And so with that, from that focal case, I ask, what is the intended meaning of the text of the Constitution? And that intended meaning is of a re-coordination of the American people from having interstate trade disputes to not having interstate trade disputes. And, and what's the tool that a, a legislator, a rational legislator is going to use? A meaning of the Constitution's text that will be understandable by the ratifiers who have to adopt it and officers, federal and state, who have to follow it. And that can't be the private subjective meaning. So the intended meaning has to be something that's accessible to the ratifiers and to American officers. Now, what about original methods? So if I'm a, a, a lawmaker like James Madison, and many of the people in the Philadelphia Convention were lawyers, many of the people in the State Ratification Convention were lawyers, and and they know that American legal practice at the time had conventional ways of interpreting legal texts and particular parts of legal texts. And, and so they, were, they, they, they had knowledge that uh, if I used a certain phrase or a certain word, that it was going to be understood in a certain way because of the legal conventions in, in our society. So, for example, the preemption clause in the Constitution, uh, which preempts uh, contrary state legislation, the preemption clause was put in there and, in fact, is a, is a form of a legal convention, which was, which was the legal convention was um, that uh, one law does not displace no, another law. And so the preemption clause was meant, was meant to be in there to overturn that presumption and say, whatever's in the Constitution overturns contrary state, state laws. And so the, so the framers and ratifiers knew about and utilized those conventional tools of interpretation, those, those conventions. And in what was the type of meaning that allowed the framers' intent, which was to overcome the coordination problem, which utilized those rules, those conventional rules of interpretation, it was the publicly accessible meaning. And so, so my argument is that from the perspective of a rational legislator trying to overcome coordination problems, the, the, uh, the public, publicly accessible meaning, which was accessible to the framers, to the ratifiers, and to American officers is the meaning that was utilized by all three necessary groups in what I call the uh, the uh, the communication uh, conception of constitutional law. I found that a pretty compelling way of thinking about how to integrate these different ways about of thinking about constitutional meaning, and it kind of helps, and it helps sort of. It helps me understand like how the meaning might, in many cases, be clearer than it might otherwise seem to be in the face of all of these different conversations that people might have been having in the moment and and today. But you acknowledge in the book that there might be cases where constitutional meaning in a kind of linguistic sense around the text might be uncertain. Sort of how how should judges and legislators and people thinking about the constitution deal with those moments of uncertainty and sort of like what framework should do you think people should use in understanding constitutional texts in particular circumstances where there might be a certain amount of vagueness or uh, open-endedness or uncertainty 
about kind of what the constitution means as a law? That's a great question. It's one, I know when I was first entering into these debates and, and when you look at early originalist scholarship, one of the uh, the gaps, I don't think it was that they had an incorrect idea, it's just that it was not an issue that they had addressed or come to terms with fully, was what do you do when the original meaning runs out? And and so my view, which is the widespread originalist view, is that the Constitution's uh, original public meaning runs out and it, it creates situations of what we call underdeterminacy. So it's not indeterminate, which is we don't know anything about it. It's typically underdetermined. And you gave you gave one example, Brian, you talked about uh, situations of vagueness. So just to take one example, it's, it's when you think of the Republican Guarantee Clause in Article 4, it's the, it is the case, I think, that there are many clear, determinate instances of Republican governments in the United States. I think there are also many clear instances of non-Republican governance. Um, and I, and I, I don't know if there's any in the United States today, but there clearly have been those types of governments throughout world history, like the Soviet Union. But it's also the case that there will be instances of vagueness where it's not really clear, is this a Republican form of government or not? And so originalists have, have acknowledged that existence of underdeterminacy. Now, there's different approaches that originalists take. My own, my own view is that that underdeterminacy is, is uh, both, 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 both a, a benefit and a burden. So, so here's how it's a, a burden. From the perspective of a rational legislator, who sees a problem and wants to overcome the problem, uh, constitutional underdeterminacy means that your meaning isn't getting through. Your solution isn't getting through. You're not able to fix the problem, or at least not as fully as you want. On the other hand, it can be the case that underdeterminacy can be a benefit because what it means is that future decision makers who maybe have more information, for example, are able to work within the area of underdeterminacy to construct constitutional meaning that fits the circumstances better than the original drafter of that legislation might have been able to do. And so, so I don't think, I don't think underdeterminacy is necessarily good or necessarily bad. I just think it does exist. And what I looked for are what are the tools that the constitution itself provides us to, to operate within those areas of underdeterminacy. And so I think the constitution has two mechanisms. One is called constitutional construction and the other probably not surprisingly, given our, our Anglo-American legal practice, is precedent. So in the area of constitutional construction, there's a wide variety of views among originalists. My view is that because of, 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 of closure rule, because of rules of interpretation, uh, they, they nudge interpreters, they nudge judges and Congress and the president to or from different interpretations. So for example, one rule of interpretation that that I'm confident existed in 1787 and, and continues to exist in our legal practice today is, is what I call the best available legal evidence rule. And I take not the name, but the idea from John McGinnis and Mike Rappaport. And the basic idea is that let's say that you're a judge and you've got a case before you and, and the fight is over the meaning of a constitutional term. And you have party X providing interpretation X and party Y providing interpretation Y. And you have only those two parties and only those two possible interpretations. The best available legal evidence standard tells the judge to choose that interpretation supported by the best available legal evidence. That's a very powerful closure rule because that means in every case, the judge is going to pick one of the two and we know it's going to be the one with the best available legal evidence. And that's, that's, that, what that does is it provides a way for the legal system through the officer of the judge or the legislator or whoever else to, to solve uh, an area of underdeterminacy 
uh, according to his or her best lights based on the best available legal evidence. So that's constitutional construction. And the second way, and this, you know, this dovetails with what I just said, is through the use of precedent. So judges uh, in the legal system, legislators and, and, and the executive in the, in the more political branches create, I'll put it in air quotes, precedents. And in the judicial system, of course, they are, they are case precedents. And my argument is that uh, built into the power that federal judges exercise is a requirement to follow the constitutional precedents, the previous interpretations that the judges have made. And what that means is that over time, as underdeterminacies are presented to courts, precedents are made resolving those underdeterminacies, that over time, the, 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 the body of law becomes thicker and thicker, the guidance becomes greater and greater, the solutions to coordination become more and more effective, and the underdeterminacy becomes less and less over time. So, so to summarize, you're right, there's un uncertainty, and I think originalism has built into it two mechanisms, construction and precedent, that try to decrease that, that deal with it, and then decrease that uncertainty over time. Well, so you also acknowledge that, like, in some cases, it just like reasonable people might disagree about what the Constitution says, even from an originalist perspective. And you talk and you talk about this idea of, of good faith. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by that and what role that ought to have in the context of an originalist interpretation of the Constitution. Sure. That, that's a great question. And, and that idea of what I call originalism and good faith comes out of the, the what I think is ubiquitous human phenomenon that people who are intelligent and thoughtful and earnest come to different conclusions about all kinds of propositions. We see that in our economic life. We see that in our religious life. And of course, we see that when we're debating about what the meaning of the Constitution is. And I'll just give you one example. So there's a big debate among originalists right now over the meaning of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And a number of scholars, uh, all who are very smart, who are hardworking, who are acting in good faith, right? and, and the two that come to mind most prominently are Professor Barnett and Professor Kurt Lash, uh, are arguing for different interpretations. And so what I, what, I had to, what I was trying to think of is, how can a legal system, whose job it is on my account to solve coordination problems, how can it do that when you have these varying interpretations out there? And originalism in good faith is an attempt to try and answer that, that or to, to, to respond to that phenomenon. And so what I argue is that when a, when a court, and I just focused on courts at this point, I haven't thought enough about Congress or the president to, to be firm about this. When a court, uh, uh, in, in its opinion, um, uh, follows the Constitution's original meaning and does so in good faith, and I'll define what that means in a second, then, then, the, the, then the power of stare decisis attaches to that precedent, and, the, and later courts have to follow that precedent. So what's it mean to be in good faith? What I do is I argue that, that a later court would look at the opinion given by the earlier court and say, is this a good faith attempt to identify the Constitution's original meaning? And there, there are clear examples of good faith attempts to identify the original meaning. And I think for example, Justice Scalia's opinion in District of Columbia versus Heller, which again, not everybody has to agree with. That's the point of it being good faith, uh, would be an example of that. And I think there are clear examples of opinions that are not in good faith. So the example that I use uh, in my constitutional law class is, uh, is uh, 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 the, the, the birth controls case uh, written by uh, Justice Douglas, where he talks about the penumbras and emanations, which doesn't talk at all about the Constitution's original public meaning. 
Uh, there's one additional implication, O'Brien, that I think is important to highlight. And let's go back to District of Columbia versus Heller. So you had the majority opinion written by Justice Scalia. Uh, it, as I think it fits the standard of a good faith articulation and application of the original meaning. I actually don't agree with all of it. In other words, I think it's incorrect in some circumstances or in some of its implications and claims, but I think it meets the good faith standard. But at the same time, Justice Stevens' opinion, which was a dissent, uh, I think also fits the good faith standard, that Justice Stevens' opinion uh, did the work, did the analytical work of uncovering the original meaning and in good faith, trying to apply that original meaning. So if Justice Stevens had been able to persuade one more of his colleagues to adjoin his side, then his opinion, and, ju- and not Justice Scalia's opinion, would have been protected by the presumption of correctness that this good faith idea would impart. And so good faith originalism is just an acknowledgement that reasonable people are going to disagree and we need to have a way to navigate through that uncertainty and provide for some determinacy after a decision has been made. Mm. Well, so maybe you could talk a little bit then about the sort of normative backdrop for the theory of originalism that you're presenting. I mean, among other things, you talk about sort of the law as a form of coordination, and you've used that term already in in this conversation. I mean, I wonder if you could talk about why you think that's important, how you think that's consistent with originalism as a theory of constitutional interpretation, and why you think that's kind of normatively something that we should collectively think is worth pursuing. Okay. That's a great question. So let me just back up a little bit. So the subtitle to my book is A Natural Law Account of the American Constitution. And I, and I think that should be, or I think it is counterintuitive to many people, uh, because I think many people have, the one of the conventional pieces of wisdom out there is that um, a judge employing natural law, a federal judge employing natural law, is going to disregard the Constitution's text original meaning. And that originalism is, is in some way the opposite of that. Originalism is about just focusing only on the positive law and the consequences or the justness be be damned or injustice be damned. And that what I argue is that, in fact, the the Western natural law tradition has pride of place for positive, that is, human-created positive law for, for legal systems. And the reason behind that is, at least on my account, is that the natural law tradition ident- identifies uh, the purposes and the key goals of individual human life and community life, but leads leaves most of the mechanisms within the discretion of the people in those communities to pursue. And, and so, for example, one of the goals of an individual human life is to have leisure. And, and leisure is, is one of the things that makes life worth living. But all of us uh, pursue leisure in, in, I think, different ways, and many of us in reasonably different ways. Some of us play basketball, some read books, some do gardening. And and so within those broad bounds that the natural law tradition lays out, a legal system, uh, and one of its main burdens is to identify positive law norms for that community to help that community pursue the common good. So the common good is the goal of the legal system and the goal of actually living in a community with other human beings, as I argue it. And, and but I have a particular conception of the common good, Brian, and, and at the, some, I think in some of the reviews, some of the some of the there's been some confusion over what I mean by the common good, and so I intentionally chose a thin or a narrow conception of the common good, because we we in the West, we in America, we as law professors, we we have reasonably different conceptions about the common good, and and, and if I picked one controversial kind of thick conception of the common good, 
I, I would, I would, my argument would be less persuasive. And so I chose an intentionally thin conception that had only three components. Now, there are three really important ones, but only three. One, one component is the rule of law, the idea of, of human actions being governed by laws prior to those actions occurring, the proposition of distributive justice. So distributive justice is making sure that every member of the community has the amount of resources broadly conceived to include material resources and other resources like education, uh, access to uh, access to leisure, among other things. And then third, uh, offices, the offices of the community that help identify how people in that community are going to live together. And my argument is that uh, that any legal system, uh, that the natural law requires positive law to pursue the common good because of these, these problems, these coordination problems that continually arise. And the kind of stock example that people give, Brian, is, uh, is, is highway regulations. When you think about highway regulations, you, you've, you've traveled abroad, right, Brian? Of course. Yeah. And so it always strikes me when I'm in another country, especially a country where they don't speak English and, that's, and I don't know the language. Uh, for example, my wife and I were in Chile a couple of years ago, and uh, we were on the road. And, and some of the signs, like there was a red octagon. I got that. I figured out what that meant. But there are a lot of the other signs where I didn't know what they meant, and it was really hard to coordinate with my fellow drivers. And, and what that shows you, what that example shows you is that something as simple, what we think is simple as driving on the roads with our fellow citizens is in fact an inc- incredibly complex cooperative activity that the law helps us do. We know in the United States, I have a son who's uh, 16 and I've been helping him drive. We pulled up to a four-way stop and there was a driver to his left who stopped about the same time. And the answer was clear to me what should happen, right? We should go because we were to the right of that driver but my son, who didn't know the rule on that point, wasn't sure what to do. But the law made it clear how us and that other driver coordinated our activity. My argument, Brian, is that the Constitution is our solution, our country's solution to fundamental coordination problems. How, how, how many branches of government should we have? How long should the president's term of office be? What power should Congress have? There's not one right answer to any of those questions, but there has to be an answer to all of those questions for us to have a properly functioning national legal system. And so what I argue is that the original meaning is the meaning that the framers utilized when they drafted the Constitution to overcome coordination problems, that the ratifiers utilized when they adopted and authorized the Constitution for our country, and that American officers are able to access so that they are able to follow when they are trying to uh, effectuate uh, their own official, their their official duties. Um, and the Commerce Clause is, a, is an example of that. So the Commerce Clause was meant to overcome interstate trade disputes. And since that time, the Commerce Clause has been utilized um, and, 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 and the framers uh, saw a problem and used the Commerce Clause as the, as the, as the, as the text, the textual tool, the legal tool to overcome that problem. And, and since that time, uh, the Supreme Court, state officers and Congress, of course, have, have followed uh, the Commerce Clause is a way to overcome those uh, those interstate trade disputes. And all of that leads to, my argument is, the common good. We've got a pre-existing norm, the Commerce Clause. It it creates what I think, in the, just focus on the Commerce Clause, a, 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 a just situation where it helps us avoid interstate trade disputes. And we have the offices, the Supreme Court through its interpretations, Congress through its statutes, the president through his or her uh, superintendents of those statutes, uh, effectuates uh, the, the Constitution and therefore the common good. So that's a long way of saying 
that the, the natural law account requires uh, positive law. And in, in the American context, the positive law of our constitution requires the original meaning. Mm. Well, so I mean, a, a couple questions, but the one I want to start with is sort of, do you think, or, or rather, why do you think that this way of thinking about the Constitution is consistent, both with how people thought about constitutionalism and constitutional meaning when the Constitution was adopted, but also with how people think about what the Constitution and constitutionalism mean today. Like, what is it about this kind of way of thinking about constitutionalism that makes you think it's consistent with how we kind of collectively actually think about what we want and believe the Constitution does? Sure. That's a great question. And, and, and so let's, let's focus first on when the Americans who were around uh, at the creation of our current Constitution. And I'll, I'll give you just a couple of, a couple of examples. So when you think about the framing of the of the of our of our original constitution, the the framers the framers took great care with what they were drafting. Um, there's there's a there's a whole literature on uh, Article Three and 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 the placement of a of a semicolon in Article Three, and and that literature focuses on uh, was was the placement of that semicolon in an intentional choice, and 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 what were the implications. Of that intentional choice, and and what that I think is an example of is that the the care with which the drafting of the Constitution was taken shows that it was an attempt to to solve coordination problems in the way that they thought was the best way to solve those coordination problems, and to not, as a general matter, say uh, some officer two hundred years from now can decide how to solve those coordination problems. In other words, they were making a choice now. Congress is going to run the post office. Congress has superintendents over interstate commerce. Federal courts do cases or controversies and not advisor opinions, as an example. Um, and and there, there are a lot of kind of statements by the framers and ratifiers during that time period that exemplify that perspective. And I argue in the book that that perspective was actually a longstanding Anglo-American perspective where one looked to different tools to identify the legislatures. So here would be the Philadelphia Convention the legislature's meaning and the goals that it was trying to achieve. Now today, um, I think, so I, I make an argument in the book that our current legal system, uh, warts and all, actually fits pretty well with originalism. Okay, but I think your question maybe was a little bit broader than that, Brian. So so how do, what is it about, uh, what is the evidence I would have today that Americans look at our constitution from an originalist perspective? And I think that the evidence actually is, is mixed to some degree. Which is fine. Uh, my claim isn't that ours is a a uh, an, an, a a univocally originalist culture, um, but but I think there are are there's evidence that fundamentally, on it's an originalist culture. So to give you an example, uh, one of the things that's distressed my non-originalist colleagues throughout the legal academy has been recent uh, justices uh, who were not of known original sympathies would make statements during the confirmation hearing that would sound a lot like a statement that a Justice Gorsuch or a Justice Scalia would make. So Justice Kagan famously said in her confirmation hearing that we are all originalists now. And and as we talked about earlier, there's different conceptions of originalism, which is the case. But the fact that as part of the performance of satisfying the Senate, that she was the type of person who should be 
uh, lifetime tenured uh, Supreme Court justice, that Justice Kagan, who wasn't previously known to have original sympathies, said that suggests both her thought about what the legal system required and her thought about what the political system more broadly uh, thought it was required. Um, and I think that fits, that, that's not just like a one-off statement. When you think about, so one of the areas that I don't teach, but I wish I taught, Ryan, is criminal procedure, because one of my favorite cases is, is the Dickerson case. I think it's U.S. versus Dickerson, maybe 2001. It was written, written by Chief Justice Rehnquist. And Rehnquist had spent the last about 30 years saying Miranda was wrong, overrule Miranda, Miranda bad. But then when it came to Dickerson, he wrote this opinion. And even though you know, everybody knows, he thought Miranda was wrong. And he was required to say, because our legal system won't allow him to say anything else, he was required to say that Miranda is constitutionally required. And what, what, what I mean by that is, even when it seems like it's not true what the Supreme Court is saying, the Supreme Court always says it's following the Constitution. Uh, and, and so I think that's another piece of evidence that originalism is a fundamental aspect of our, of our legal culture today. Well, so the, the, the other question I had around that same issue was about the relationship between originalism and natural law and this idea of kind of coordination that you discussed. And I, I wonder, I mean, do you think it's just like a happy coincidence that the Constitution uh, instantiates a sort of natural law consistent version of this idea of legal coordination? Or do you think that's kind of what it was designed to do? Oh, that, that's a great question. And, and let me say a couple of kind of precatory things. So the first thing I would say is, is that I think there are a wide variety of reasonable ways that reasonable legal systems would pursue the common good uh, consistent with the natural law tradition that, did, that would not require originalism. And I think the paradigm example would be the, the uh, English common law system. So for centuries, the English legal system was primarily one of what we today would characterize unwritten common law rules that were enforced by courts. Now, that system, uh, I think, worked tolerably well. Um, and I think that's, that a system like that today could work tolerably well as well. In fact, many of our facets of American law today fit that, fit that model. So, we, so one doesn't need a written text with an original meaning to effectively pursue the common good. But there could be sound reasons why a, a community and a legal system would choose that. And, uh, and I think Keith Whittington, I think, does the best job in his uh, 1999 book, Constitutional Interpretation, arguing what the reasons were why the framers chose a written constitution and originalism to do that. The second kind of precatory comment I would make, Brian, is uh, it is certainly not my, my claim, and it's not my view either, that the Constitution uh, achieves uh, some kind of normative ideal. Uh, my, 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 in fact, there are many ways in which I think the Constitution is imprudent, and I think there are ways in which it's, it's positively unjust, both when it was created and today. And so I'll just give you one example. I think it's incredibly imprudent to give uh, human beings the power that federal judges currently exercise uh, for, their, for the remainder of their natural lives. And uh, I think that that causes all kinds of problems, both for the, for the individuals and then for the legal system. So my claim isn't that, that the, it, it's, a, it's a happy coincidence uh, of, of some kind of uh, perfection, but my, my claim is narrower, and it's that if one accepts that, that, that the common good is valuable to pursue, which I've not found anybody yet who says it's not, 
and that three components of the common good are the rule of law, distributive justice, and the offices that, that superintend the common good, my argument is that originalism best advances that conception of the common good. So it's a narrow one, right? It's one that, that I certainly share. I think most people share, but, but it's one that's narrower than my own conception of, of what the common good fully is. And so, I, so it's, 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 a, it's, it's, not a, it's not a coincidence. It's actually, I think, uh, evidence that the people who drafted our constitution were thoughtful people who valued the rule of law, who valued distributive justice, and who valued the instrumentality of the offices to help implement the rule of law and, and distributive justice, that they were thoughtful people who had a lot of experience, they were widely read. And so it's not surprising that people with that kind of background and in the kind of circumstances that the United States were in, which was not being subject to some kind of foreign enemy, uh, being subject to, for the most part, internal accord among the different Americans up and down the seacoast, that they would be able to craft a government that worked tolerably well pursuing that thin conception of the common good. Mm. Well, so Lee, I mean, in closing, you know, I, I don't think it's a secret that a lot of kind of debate and dispute over constitutional values is sort of imbued with a sort of normative character, right? As On a kind of fundamental level, people are really disputing kind of really deep normative values and normative questions. And and I wonder, like, what would you say to people who are um, uncomfortable with originalism as a method of interpreting and explicating the Constitution because they think that it produces normatively bad outcomes? Like, why should those people still accept originalism on your account, even though they might not agree on a kind of really fundamental moral level with some of the implications of that kind of way of thinking about what it means to do constitutionalism. Sure. And that's a, that's a great question, Brian. It's one that, that, that is a live question that when I do debates or do talks that, that comes up. So I appreciate you, you, you offering that to me. And it's actually live for me personally because as I said earlier, not only do I think that many parts of the Constitution's original meaning are imprudent, I gave the example of federal judges, I actually think that some of the parts are positively unjust. This will be a, the claim I'm going to make now is controversial. Uh, I'm pro-life, so I think that a proper and just legal regime would protect unborn human life. I don't think the Constitution's original meaning does that. I think it authorizes states to choose their own paths regarding abortion. And so I think that that's actually a, a deep injustice in the constitution. So it's, it's a, so the question that you asked is one that I, that I share and that I've, I've had to work through. So let me, let me say uh, four things in response to your question. So, so first it is the case that the original meaning from, I think any reasonable perspective is going to be unjust. Now we have different perspectives and we have different things about what counts as being unjust, but all of us are going to think that there are parts that are unjust. I actually think that that shows that are, that's a, that's a compliment to originalism. That shows that originalism is a theory of legal interpretation, unlike some of its competitors. And, and here's what I mean by that. So one of the classes that I teach, Brian, is property law. And one part of property law is servitude law. And American servitude law is this kind of Frankenstein amalgamation of, of three different sub-doctrines, easements, real covenants, and equitable servitudes. And after I get done teaching it, I, I'll ask my students kind of jokingly, 
so if you were the dictator of the state or of the United States, would this be the, the body of law that you would identify as the proper way to regulate uh, property uses among different, uh, different neighbors? And the answer is always no. But, but nobody says that that's not our law. And, and I think nobody says that, that American servitude law right now, imperfect as it is, should not be followed because it's imperfect as it is. Instead, I think originalism's imperfections are a product and are evidence that it's a faithful interpreter of the human legal artifact of the Constitution, just like servitude law is a properly taught, is a faithful uh, rendition of the imperfect servitude law that most of our jurisdictions have. So I think that if you had a theory of interpretation that didn't arrive at imperfect uh, conclusions, that would be evidence that it's something else. It's not interpretation. I think second, originalism's imperfections are actually a virtue in a second way, because that would encourage and incentivize Americans to fix the problems. So we actually used to do that a lot, right? So we, we had a massive civil war about treating people of different colors uh, with equality. We had not a civil war, but we had a 60-year-long debate about gender equality and voting, which Americans came and embodied in the 19th Amendment in 1920, and we haven't looked back. But since that time, Brian, it's not that we Americans have come to agree on everything, and it's not that we Americans think that everything's perfect. We've just chosen a different way, a kind of a silent way to modify our Constitution. And since the New Deal, my argument is in the book, what we've done is we've substituted actual amendments. Uh, we've substituted for them uh, changing interpretations by, by Supreme Court justices. And what's that done, I think, is that it's actually made Americans' civic muscles weak. Uh, so let, let's think back to the last election. So when I, if you were like me, uh, the last election, I was thinking about, okay, does this president candidate support or oppose you know, policy A or policy B? But I was also thinking a lot about what kind of justices would this presidential candidate appoint to the Supreme Court? Because the game is, and everybody knows it, that you get your people on the Supreme Court and they reinterpret the Constitution in the way that you think, as you talked about earlier, it reaches normatively desirable results. But but think about how different it would be if we had a country where we were we actually were stuck with the imperfect constitution, where we Americans would have to engage each other in a robust civic debate like we did with the 19th Amendment and, and like we did with the, uh, the income tax amendment. So I think originalism's imperfections would, if we actually uh, uh, were stuck with them, and uh, would, would lead to that uh, benefit. My last point, Brian, would be that acknowledging the Constitution's imperfections, as I've done, uh, does not dissuade from the great goods that my argument shows originalism leads to, the rule of law, justice, and offices that superintend them. And so, and this, and this actually struck me kind of ironically during the, uh, the President Trump impeachment. So if you remember at the end of the impeachment, uh, President Trump was impeached by the House, and the, uh, the House, uh, the, the Speaker and the House officers carried the articles of impeachment from the House over to the Senate in, in a kind of a quasi-religious ceremony, I would say. And, and I thought to myself, uh, we Americans have lots of different views about that. We're passionate about those different views. In other countries, that kind of a situation would lead to violence, a revolution, bloodshed. In our country, it leads to like a nice wooden box with some fancy pens being walked from one hall to the other. That's the benefit of the rule of law. And my argument is that consistently followed originalism protects that incredibly good value of the rule of law and justice. Not, not everything, but, but those things in particular. 
And, and, and so that's what I'm saying when I say originalism is able to achieve the common good and normatively desirable results. Not perfect, but the great goods of the rule of law and justice. Well, Lee, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed reading your book and talking to you about it. And I commend it to people who are interested in reading about originalism and especially people who are thinking about it in the context of, of natural law. Brian, thank you so much for your really thoughtful questions. I, I'm, I'm stunned that you had the chance to read all these books. You must have like a mind that's like a library by this point. Lock us up together, just us two.